Welcome to the Midlife Pilot Podcast. This is a podcast all about flying and aviation and learning to fly in midlife. And uh, that's what it is. My name is Chris Moran. I'm known as the Midlife Pilot on YouTube. Uh, I'm joined by my illustrious, lustrous co-host, uh, Brian Siskin from Deep in the Heart of Music Row. And we're excited about this week, uh, episode number 36. Uh, we got a special guest going to be joining us here in just a few minutes, and we'll talk a lot more about him as we get going. But it is great to see you tonight, Brian. Yeah, man. How's it going? Uh, I like your scenery there. Um, the the back Your Zoom background looks so real. It's getting really good, isn't it? <laughs> it's going to change it, dramatically over the next hour uh, as the lighting conditions change. That's so so authentic. And it'll have uh, little planes that go by and the sounds and all that. Yep, we should. No, that's great. Um, but yeah, so yeah, good to see you. I'm doing I'm doing fine. I'm, I'm going through withdrawals because my plane's been in annual for a while and autopilot install for a while. And uh, it's kind of... Um, it's kind of tough. Yeah. It's like been yeah. such an incredible stretch of weather here. And, uh, you know, I have, the opposite. I have the opposite situation after not flying uh, hardly at all for a very long time. I've actually had two flights in the last uh, couple of weeks since we last potted together. <clears throat> One of them I did not video, took my daughter over to Parkersburg, uh, West Virginia to actually get her TSA pre-check appointment done. Uh, as we're getting ready for our Oshkosh trip in July, um, ah. she turned 18. And so she can't go with me on my pre-check anymore. And I'm like, I am not standing in security lines with you in Chicago on the way back. So we're, <laughs> we got that all squared away. It was a beautiful day for that flight. And then I actually, I know you all are shocked. I published a video, uh, in the last week, yes, uh, of a quick flight in the 235. And we talked all about, uh, VOR navigation and engine leaning with the JPI engine monitor. And uh, so check that out on the channel if you haven't seen it yet. But it's uh, that was a fun flight with my friend Tyler. Uh, so, yeah, I've been flying a little bit. Well, so um, a lot of people here remember when uh, I told the story of, uh, you know, that I was renting an airplane from uh, uh, flight school here at John Toon. And in early March, the sustained sort of wind event that we had uh, turned that plane on its head and also my ability to fly was turned on its head um, which you know has led to some good things in the end you know now I'm part owner in a plane that I can't fly so that's awesome because uh, it's in maintenance but um, I have to say um, and I'm not sure if I really explained it but you know the arrangement for that plane was a very unique and special thing and I think that it's a real testament to have, you know, pe people that run flight schools that have visions to do things a little differently, you know, you see a lot of the baseline stuff running and people just are kind of doing the normal thing. This was a very unique situation in that rental plane. And obviously it didn't work out because of the weather, but it wasn't, uh, wasn't the owner's fault or the school's fault. But the cool thing is we have that owner or I'm sorry, that flight school uh, owner uh, here with us as a guest today on the Midlife Pilot Podcast. And so I just want to welcome uh, my friend Jeff Ramsey to the podcast. Hey, guys. <laughs> Hello. So, <clears throat> so Jeff uh, runs Frequency Change Aviation, which is based here out of John Toon. Um, and, you know, I think that one of the things I want to get into you really quickly with, uh, Jeff, is there are other flight schools at John Toon. And I will, I will say... I made a choice to go to a different flight school than your flight school, but that was because I didn't know any better at the time. And I just wanted to publicly apologize. I see the truth now. I did it wrong. But I think it's a really interesting point that I just want to get right into. And this is be a better way, I think, for you to describe what you're, you're doing is to really talk about how you do it. And so what I wanted to get right into uh, it with, with you, Jeff, is to say, I made this choice of going with, you know, you were a newer school at the point. I didn't, I didn't, I was a, I didn't know anything about aviation or flight schools or how to choose one or anything. Now with the perspective that I have, I can see how uh, I kind of missed the boat by going with somebody that could have been a little bit different. Um, and we've talked about this, you know, you have a real motivation to run a flight school that does things a little bit different and to provide a better experience for people. So um, without getting into the, you know, 
how did you start flying and how did you start a flight school? I want to get right into how and why uh, did you decide to have a flight school that was different? And what did you see? Where did you see the opportunities to do that? Sure. Um, so I did have the opportunity to work. I started my flight instructing career um, at a local flight school and um, it, not necessarily that particular flight school, but just in general, um, we would get kind of what we call transfer students from other flight schools that were around the area. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of where you can see where some of the shortfall was in the flight instruction world, which unfortunately the way it's set up is that's everybody's first, for the most part, uh, flying job. So uh, they're trying to build their time to the airlines, which requires a 1,500-hour minimum. And so you end up getting these people who – a, a lot of people who shouldn't be in this job, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be teaching people how to fly because they don't have the patience. They don't have the ability to transfer knowledge um, in the way that people who truly have a, the heart of a teacher. Mm -hmm. uh, so I was seeing a lot of pe people come through that they had done zero groundwork. Um, they had, they didn't, they didn't know how to set things up appropriately uh, there was just a, a huge gap, I felt like, in the flight instruction world that, that needed to be met. This stuff is expensive. Uh, this is an expensive hobby, and it's um, – some would argue that it's dangerous. Uh, it obviously, as pilots, we, we, we know that there are inherent risks, and we do what we can to mitigate those risks. But um, it, there are some – there are dangers that we need to address, and I don't feel like – um, in general, I felt like the Nashville flight instruction world was missing uh, was missing the boat in a lot of areas. So um, I started my company. I was coming out of a job that was uh, I was it was a charter gig. Um, I left the flight instruction job to go do that. And uh, as some of you may know, that's a pretty that's a pretty rough gig as far as the scheduling goes. And so I, I left the job and. I had to go back to flight instruction. And so I had two forks in the road. I could go back to working for another flight school. Or I said, I, I, I've always wanted to own a business. And, you know, why don't I just give this a, sh a shot? I wouldn't have to, I could do things kind of my way. And, um, and so with that, I had access to one Cessna 150. And I taught in that. And I got so busy that. I had to hire another instructor and that airplane got busy. I had to hire to get another airplane. It just, it kind of snowballed. Um, so um, that was where the opportunity was. It was just, I wanted to do things the right way and I wanted to kind of direct um, the activities of a team so that we were uh, as a team doing better flight instruction. That's yeah. the, that's the crux of all of it. I think you made a huge point there that, you know, I mean, I come from, you know, my, my mother was a teacher. My wife is a teacher. I really have a pretty intrinsic understanding of how hard it is to teach anything and um, and what an art form that that is unto itself. And uh, I find it really interesting that you mentioned that almost right away that uh, any good teacher is going to say that it's a calling or it's, it's something that's important to them as a, as a, as a sort of a craft. And um, I think that one of the big problems with a lot of flight schools is uh, you've got a farm system for people that are coming out of, you know, MTSU programs or whatever. There's nothing wrong with this. I'm just saying <clears throat> for people like us that are not just, in that same kind of system, we're all just climbing to the airlines or whatever. We're actually just people that really enjoy flying and, and, and we take it very seriously, but in, in a different way, maybe, um, you know, it's a little weird when you're in your forties or fifties and your instructor is 21 years old and has never fueled a plane before. Do you, I mean, do you find, do you, do you find yourself sort of trying to work away from that? Like, how do you choose your instructors? Yeah, that's a great point. Um, uh, so rewinding a little bit and not getting into too much past detail as you were at, you, you mentioned earlier, but I was a recruiter before this. So, mm. um, I was an accountant and I was a recruiter. 
Um, and as a recruiter, you kind of gain a lot of, um, I don't know, in order to be good at that, uh, I was a headhunter. That's uh, what I did in, in the accounting world. And in order to be good at that, you're interviewing people constantly. And, uh, and you kind of know the right questions to ask to, to see how they handle it and uh, what their personality kind of truly is and uh, where their weak areas might be. And for me, uh, um, I kind of knew what questions to ask in, in, in the interviews, but also getting references on people is, is a huge deal. Um, and so I would have them uh, give me references for two past instructors and, and one, uh, well, not all of them were coming from past instruction. So anybody who was a past instructor, I would get somebody who they had taught before. And um, so that was a good way for me to get a, some insight into a, a third party telling me, um, you know, what were, what were they good at and what were some of the things that maybe they could focus on? Are they coachable? And that's the big key word for, for this industry is somebody coachable. And, and I would not lead them into saying that word. I would, I would just gather from what they were saying, try to get the, what they're trying to tell me without actually saying it. And that's what I, I did as a recruiter. What's led to, uh, being able to hire good quality instructors and that's what it all starts with. I mean, I give all the credit in the world to, I brag on my instructors all the time. Um, yeah. They are awesome. And I, I think Brian, you've worked with, with one or two of them and uh, could probably vouch for that, but um, they are the reason for our success. And uh, it's, it's, it comes down to, to just hiring the right people. Yeah. And so Chris, you're, you know, not running a flight school, but you're running a, a club. I mean, you have to do the same kind of thing, right? Like in terms of vetting and, and all that. Yeah. And we've been really fortunate. So, you know, it is that common disclaimer that anytime we bring this topic up, I like to say like, you know, we don't, we're not, we don't, our club does not offer flight instruction, but we do have three or four um, instructors in our club who are authorized to give instruction in our club airplanes to student members. And we're in a kind of unique situation in that right next door to us, there's the Fairmont State University has an aviation program, a part 141 school that are turning out, you know, pilots out of their out of their flight school. And a lot a lot of those uh, kids that are going through that program go the instructor route. And so we kind of have a built in pipeline um, where we're and we know, you know, we, we have a relationship with the school and we know these people and um, we can get pretty good leads that way. And we've been really, really fortunate um, that the instructors that we've had that have joined our club, um, you know, we do have an opportunity to get to know them beyond just um, they have the certificate. So, you know, that's, you know, check the box and bring them on. There's a, there is a vetting process here, you know, for that, too, before we're just going to authorize somebody. But it it is. It is a unique situation. Like two of our instructors right now uh, aren't aren't yet twenty one. You know, it's like somebody joked the other day. One of our guys who's older took his check ride, um, and he's like, "I've never. Uh, I didn't think I'd be taking lessons and getting signed off, getting my private pilot certificate from an instructor who I couldn't have a celebratory beer with um, <laughs> yet." But we have been really, really fortunate to have some very, very, um, you know. Uh, Con, uh, very safety conscious, very, um, they, they take it seriously in all the right ways. And, um, they're not just out here to build their hours that they need, you know, to move on. They, they, they take the instruction part very seriously. In fact, one of them's pulling up in our 172 right now with a student. So it's, um, yeah, we've been pretty lucky in that way. And it's been, it's been really neat to talk, but I, I got mine from an instructor that, taught at that school but i was his first and then subsequently his only part 61 student so we've had a lot of discussions kind of about the difference between the curriculum and how you how that varies between a, a 141 and a 61 curriculum yeah and you mentioned uh, a key point there is is personality i mean that's what it is you're going to be spending um you know let's just say the average is 60 hours uh for flight training to get your private pilot license um, that's a lot of time to spend in a, in a really small airplane with somebody. So, uh, the fact that you mentioned somebody you could go get a celebratory beer with, is this somebody I want to be cooped up in a cockpit with for 60 hours? And, um, that's kind of how I, I feel like I've done well with hiring. Um, and also, I mean, it's the little things that matter too. If you look at the way somebody presents a resume, um, 
I can, again, as a recruiter, I did a lot of that and maybe it's judgy, but, um, you know, you, you get a, a resume, you can just tell by someone put some time and effort into this, um, this product that they want a potential employer to see. Um, so that's a big deal. That's kind of yeah, how you if they're misspelling words, right? <laughs> it's like <laughs> there's an attention to detail when it matters that is being displayed there. Um, that's, that's, uh, yeah, that's or is my, it that's in, my pet peeve is, is spelling? It, yeah, or is it multiple? Is it just one font with no bold? I mean, I don't know. I know it's <laughs> right, yeah, yeah, but yeah. at the same time, <laughs> if, that, if that's how they're going to treat their resume, that's how gonna, they're going to treat your customers. That's how they're going to treat your airplanes, right. and you know, you can easily weed out that way. Yeah. Uh, real quick, uh, just to interject this off topic, but uh, Indy Tripacers in the chat tonight. Wanna, we like to celebrate these things. Uh, all your info really helped me pass my private check ride last Tuesday at the age of 57. Wow. You really inspired me. So congratulations um, to Indy Tripacer. That's awesome. That is awesome. Does he fly a Tripacer is the question. That would be a valid follow-up. <laughs> the Tripacer, like one of the only airplanes I can afford to buy all of. <laughs> exactly. Um, One Dog Geek has a really good question for Jeff. Can we? Are we? Are you, yeah. Is the format, Brian. We're just gonna throw these. Yeah, I've here? got other questions, but I mean, yeah, yeah. everybody's got questions. How would you recommend that new students who know nothing about how to pick an instructor navigate the process of picking an instructor? That is a great question, um, and to the point I just made, you're going to be in this, in a small uh, space with the same person for a long time. Um, the, the easiest way to do that is just going to be to fly with multiple um, for at least a little bit. Um, not too many. I mean, just pick out, uh, narrow it down to two or three, um, and then do uh, your first couple lessons, uh, maybe maybe your first six or so, uh, go up with both of them. Or if you wanted to, to, to try a third, then do that. Um, but you're going to get a sits pretty quickly for if they – um, if they can really cater to your learning style. And again, as a flight instructor, as a teacher in general, everybody learns differently. And so it's all about how do I get through to this person? Um, you know, some people are visual learners. Some people are hands-on learners. Some people need you to demonstrate uh, a maneuver three or four times before they go and do it. So it, does this person pick up on my learning style or do they like to really be hands-on themselves and, and keep their hands on the controls and not allow me to really see, uh, am, I, am I doing that or is my flight instructor doing that? Um, I, I get a lot of that feedback from uh, students who either come from other flight schools or um, you know, just, just talking in general about some of my colleagues. Um, I've heard people say, well, that person is too hands-on. I need somebody who will allow me to, to mess up or to progress into the, a mistake so that I can see if I can get out of it on my own. And as a flight instructor, everybody has their different ways of doing that. Um, and some people won't let you do that. Some people are very tight. Um, and I will say you'll probably get that more with newer uh, flight instructors, less, less dual given time. Uh, you'll get someone who's a little bit more nervous. Uh, obviously, they're the pilot in command. They're responsible for that airplane making it down in one piece and for you making it down in one piece. And so a lot of times you'll see people get away from that as they get more flight time. But that's not taking away from anything from, from people who are lower time. You can still have great instructors who are lower time. I would say more than that, try to find somebody who fits, who you feel can get through to your learning style, whatever that may be. Um, and I mentioned a couple of examples just now. So that's that's how I'd say it's personality um, more than anything else. And are they impatient? Because when, you, when you're first doing doing those first couple of flights, you're doing things that you've never experienced before. You're in a literally you're you're in a three three axis plane um, that you have to control all three axes at the same time. There's a lot going on. You're probably not going to hear ninety percent of what your instructor says because you're going to be death grip on that airplane trying to keep it flying, although, by the way, it will fly itself. Um, but you just want to you, you want to make sure that you're not going to get somebody who's who's impatient with you. Um, and and there's going to be plenty of opportunity for them to be impatient with you in those first 10 hours or so. So I would say use that first 10 hours as your 
as your kind of um, phase to, to, to picking a flight instructor. Use two or three and, and just kind of pick up on what works best for you. Yeah. I, I for, Somehow I only had one instructor through the whole thing. It just kind of worked out uh, for me. He did get impatient with me sometimes, but not really, kind of. But I can totally understand why, because I'm sure that I was a handful uh, as a student. Um, I'm sure that I was not easy. All that being said, Jeff, how do you like you have so much instruction experience here? Like, how do you and I know that part of being becoming a CFI, they teach you a lot of this. And there's part of the curriculum about this. But in your sort of more personal point of view, um, how do you what are the kind of some of the prototypes or the archetypes i guess is the better word for the types of students that you get and then how you modulate perhaps your approach to that student okay that's a great question um i will say a lot of it is dictated by age (laughs) i believe that that's fair (laughs) this is uh you know it's motor skills this is you're trying to train your brain to do something that like I said, it hasn't, you haven't experienced doing this before. You've got a lot of things going on at once. And, um, when you start training, I would say if you have never flown an airplane before, um, after your forties, it becomes more challenging. And it's just because it's just, that's the way life is. (laughs) Um, you know, things just start breaking down. I mean, uh, I'm 42 and, and, uh, I'm experiencing some of that myself, but, um, you know, if you start after four, that's where I've seen a lot of people struggle and take a little bit longer and get a little bit more frustrated after that age. Um, I've had a lot of, and the, and the reason I say that is the other end of that spectrum is I soloed somebody in six hours, total flight time, um, who was 18. He had just graduated from high school oh. and, I mean, this guy, I would tell him what, what he's doing wrong the first time. And then I'd say, all right, we'll do it again. And he would just nail it every single time. And it was, it was, it was crazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like it before. And then, you know, as you, as you work your way up the age scale, unfortunately, um, <laughs> I've seen people take a little bit longer and, and just need more repetition and really more, um, more consistency f- flying more often in order to, to knock it out. Um, and that's just the way it is. Um, that, that, that's what I would say the most, uh, is, is just, it's dictated a lot by age just because our brains, they slow down in our, in older age. And so if you just start out in your forties, it just gets a little bit more challenging. You know, it really is funny how, because I think that this age, you know, the midlife age, right. Forties or fifties, what's weird about it is, in probably most other areas of life, we're not necessarily, uh, I feel like my motor skills are equally as good as they were in my, like in my head, I'm still in my twenties and of, you know, I don't have any reason, right? Like to me, my reflexes seem like they're all the same and flight training for me was just one big drawn out expensive realization of my own mortality. And, and that I was under this illusion about myself and I, you know, I, I uh, people have heard this before, but I, I kept joking with my instructor when I, you know, I said, look, if, will you just tell me if I'm a prodigy or not? Because I feel like I'm, I might be a prodigy, but you know, we'll see how it goes. And then by the, you know, third or fourth lesson, it's like, I was like, I'm not a prodigy. Am I? He's like, no. Uh, so it was just hard work from there. You had to really just put in the, the, the work, you know? And so I think that that's the other side, maybe of the midlife pilot, uh, you know, maybe we don't have the reflexes and we don't get things done maybe as immediately in that way. But I think that where we do tend to pick up the slack is we're all professional in some other area of life. We know, we know what it takes to do something and do something well. And it's work. It's not something that just gets handed to you and, uh, and then also we have a fully formed frontal lobe. So we understand consequences and risk assessment. And we are thinking about putting family in the planes and all this. So we, you know, we put a lot more maybe uh, gravity than, you know, gosh, if I was 18, you know, it's like, you know, send it and see what happens. But, uh, but yeah. yeah, so that's, that's a very interesting. That's a great very, point. Uh, yeah. I think, I think those challenges can be overcome. 
um, yeah. with, you just got to work harder. I mean, just like anything else, you know, uh, if you have a business and you don't have as much money in the bank as the next guy does, you're going to have to work harder at other things and be better at other things in order to, to win. Um, in this case, you know, you can you can really help yourself by maybe getting a, a full flight simulator or, or a partial flight simulator at home um, or chair flying, things of that nature, where you're actually building that muscle memory um, outside of just coming in and spending, um, you know, 180 bucks an hour at while the prop is spinning. Mm-hmm. So there are things you can do to to bridge the gap. I was spoiled. I feel like I had an exemplary instructor for my flight training. Um, and I've watched a lot of, you know, you see a lot of things on the internet. He, he was excellent. And I, so I started training at 40 and I soloed at nine hours, um, which, you know, hindsight, they talk about being older and having the knowledge though. Like looking back at it now, I think, boy, I'm glad everything went right. You know, like that's a great thing about you think, oh yeah, I, was, I nailed it. It was beautiful. And I thought, yeah, because everything went exactly the plan you, you don't know what you don't know at nine hours and it's kind of like you know uh, um but it was it was a great experience and i i do attribute your, your flight simulator point was a pretty good one i think i attribute a lot of my early success to the fact that i had thousands and thousands probably of flight simulator hours at home including you know with with atc stuff i mean i had studied a lot i was doing vat sim before it was cool and then <laughs> later on pilot edge man, had a subscribe i was doing all of the things and so when i got on the plane they kept saying i can't believe you said you're doing all the radios from your first lesson i said well yeah i don't even have to think about that i mean that's the part that's i just that's just already natural and i think that really helped me because people get students get so especially some of these older guys who are starting now like get so hung up on like it takes a hundred percent of their attention to like think about a call and make it like, and I was fortunate to like, I didn't literally did not have to think about that through my entire training. And I think yep. that took a huge burden off. Yes. Uh, it, radio calls are just a, one more thing that you have to do. It's more workload that you have to do, which is what distracts you from what you need to be doing, which is flying the airplane. And, um, actually, you know, not to get again, back too much into history, but, how I got to this and what made me want to do this. I was a flight sim geek myself. Um, growing up, I had everything, every version of flight simulator from the 90s up through they st- whenever they stopped making I think it was 2016. But I had VAT sim as well, and I think my best friend, who's, who's probably on uh, on the on the podcast listening, uh, he and I would, would geek out, and <laughs> and, and we'd, we'd fly from you know Los Angeles to Las Vegas, and we'd be on with ATC. But I wasn't even a pilot then, and so you can understand. Um, you got the radio work. It was it was those were real ATC controllers, or they were trained at least. Right. Uh, a lot of them were real ATC controllers, and um, so you actually got real world experience on the radio. And knocking that out before you start flying takes a huge workload off. Um, it makes you have to think about it less. Yeah, I think I think simulators like they're obviously they become very helpful when you're working on instrument and some other things, but there's less of that when you're working on the primary flight stuff. But you know, because it was shocking to me the first time I got in a real airplane after like, and I, I would fly jets because they were fun, but also I did a lot of like 172 simulator flying because I knew I wanted to do this and it was important. <laughs> So the flying, not so much like the actual mechanics, because, you know, the throw of the yoke is way smaller than the real thing. And everything's not it's not I got in a real airplane and was like, mm, that this doesn't feel at all like that felt. <laughs> uh, but like, how about knowing where everything was and like how the systems work and where the instruments were and like what like just that just that familiarity when you sit down in a real airplane for the first time is kind of like. Well, I, I have a head start that I didn't even I mean, I, when I started simming years ago as a kid, I never thought when I was 40, I would do this, but I thought, man, what yep. an advantage that gives you just to yep. have that kind of basic knowledge. Now I didn't know a lot of things. I had a lot of wrong Im- impressions of things and whatever, but <laughs> I knew where everything was and like how, you know, how, what it all was. And, um, we got to skip a lot of that. You know what I mean? That you know, there's no of- density altitude in this simulator. <laughs> what the heck? Yeah. And, 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 uh, I'll, I'll, I'll piggyback on that point. Um, you know, the simulator is, um, it's okay for private pilot training. Um, I would say it's really good if you have like a full like rudder, yoke, throttle quadrant, um, so that you can kind of where do my hands need to be, where do my feet need to be, where do my eyes need to be, um, all at the same time. Uh, if you don't have that, 
really all it's good for on private is, uh, like you said, where the panel is. And, and okay, well, here's the alternator battery switch. Here's the magnetos. Here's the primer. And you can actually go, you know, you, you can go do your flight lesson, and your instructor will teach you maybe flows or whatever for doing a run-up. But you can do a run-up right there uh, on flight sim when you go home, and you can, okay, well, that's what he was talking about. There's the magnetos. Okay, if I go this way, the magnetos drop. Um, so you can kind of experience that and you can do it in your own time. You can pause it. Um, but landing isn't very realistic for, um, for flight simulators, but it's perfect for instrument training. It's really good. I couldn't fly an arc until, um, until I did flight simulator. Cause it's just, it just slows it all down. You can pause it, you can back it up. Um, but I couldn't fly an arc to save my life until I, I did that. And just, okay, so this is what he's saying. I need to twist him, turn him. So that's where you get a lot of proficiency with instrument training is, is with, uh, with similar. So I would recommend it for instrument, but not so much for private. So Jeff, I understand that you pretty much know everything and you've never made any mistakes, uh, which is, I think that's great. Um, but I want to hear, because I know I have one of these in my head, Chris, I imagine you probably do too, but I like to hear failures. So Jeff, what do you have? Like, do you have in your mind, the, what is the worst landing that you've ever had? Okay. Yes, I do have that in mind. <laughs> See, it doesn't take long, right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so the worst landing was um, I had gone to Knoxville, uh, Tennessee grad, and I'd gone to a football game that weekend. And it was Sunday, and the winds were projected to be really high in Nashville. Um, later in the day. Um, and it was one of those things where I was probably maybe 10 or 15 hours after I got my private. Mm. I had an airplane. I was fortunate enough to have an airplane. Um, and I was coming from Knoxville, coming westbound. I was checking all the, the METARs along the way, just trying to get a gauge for are, are the winds uh, picking up or are they staying steady? This is one of those days I probably shouldn't have taken off. Mm. And, uh, probably one of those days that, um, I called my flight instructor after it and he, he used the word and maybe you've heard this wisdom before, but it's, you took a pinch from the bag of, uh, luck and you put it in the bag of wisdom and you hope that the bag of wisdom fills up before the bag of luck runs out. Um, and that's probably the first time I experienced it. Cause when you're, when you get your license, you're free to go when you want to. Um, this was a day where I didn't adhere to my personal minimums. And so I was probably in Crossville at that point. I was, I was rating ahead towards Smyrna, which is where the airplane was based. And the winds were getting beyond the limitations of the airplane. Um, it was probably about a 15 to 20 knot crosswind in Crossville, which is where I actually, Upper Cumberland Regional, Sparta, which is where I ended up landing. Um, and so 15, 15 knots is the limit for a 172, which is what this airplane was. Um, and it was probably gusting to 20 as far as full crosswind. Um, and I went around three or four times and I was just, I was death gripping. I, th I thought this is this is it. I've, I'm into something I can't get out of. Um, and so the fifth time uh, I touched down, and it was, I mean, I was side loaded. I was <laughs> all the things you're not supposed to be. And um, fortunately, I mean, the airplane just kind of settled down. Uh, I was going slow enough to where it it didn't run. All, I didn't lose control, but definitely learned a lot that day. That's my worst landing. It's just there's that feeling of just I know I know what you're talking about. Um, I had one a, a, kind of a similar experience, but it was kind of a thing where I was flying out to <clears throat> to Texas, and by the time I got to where I was going, it's like this is <laughs> like it's not. It was a time of day where it's like nothing's going to get any better. It's only going to get worse. I went around once, and that was just sort of like I, I hate. There's nothing I hate more than that feeling that you're talking about there, where it's like. Mm -hmm. uh, you're kind of a, you feel like you're a passenger, yep. you know, uh, you're not in a hundred percent control of, of what's going on. Cause you just don't have enough experience or whatever it is. Um, 
and even sometimes still you like you have those mental sort of I don't know, little shockwaves or lapses of just like uh, delayed reactions or, or, or whatever. But even if, even if it's just 50 milliseconds of I'm not in total control here <laughs> at that stage uh, is really, is really frightening. But, um, but yeah, it sounds like, it sounds like you worked it out. And then, well, yeah, you start thinking about like, uh, what are they going to tell my mom? (laughs) (laughs) He shouldn't have been flying, you know, (laughs) you're like, I hope they change the METAR real quick. Uh, yes. Um, I always, always joke with my my students that I want to be, uh, I want to be like my dying in an airplane store to be like, I was like fighting a dragon and uh, (laughs) rescuing a baby and (laughs) not like something stupid. Mm. Yeah. Like, yeah, I just, just had to pee. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so there was a question a little bit further down, Chris, uh, that uh, our friend David Moscadelli asked that I think is a, a good one. Um, he just did his biannual flight review and he based it all on uh, AQP and went through all of that with his instructor um, and was talking about how it's sort of uncomfortable and, and fun. You know, uh, I guess I was curious, Jeff, you know, for especially for people like us right we're we're not necessarily like we have we're going for different ratings and a lot of us are instrument rated um or working on it but there's certain levels of i mean i would i'm sure you would agree right like that the baseline for currency does not even come close to what proficiency actually is and there's not a lot of things to to really force you to 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 elevate your skills once you kind of got your ratings, it's up to you to sort of manage it. And I feel like that the AQP protocol is pretty good for that. Are, are you familiar with it? And and what do you think about it? You'll have to fill me in. I'm not sure what that is. Ah, so it's, AQ- stump yeah, the instructor. No, it's a, it's kind of a, a couple of YouTube. I mean, it's, Grassroots aviation advanced. It's basically, basically taking a lot of things from the airlines and bringing them to general aviation. So it has to do with, uh, you know, things you probably already do. It's just a format, right? Like putting people through loss of thrust on takeoff, putting people through, you know, it's just, a- they've taken real world, like, um, where people kill themselves a lot, okay. you know, and made that kind of the impetus of the flight review. Yeah. You know, like taking, uh, I mean, it's more, it's practical, you know, I mean, it's very, it's very, very practical stuff. Um, like, uh, judging someone's, um, aeronautical decision-making and their pre-flight, pre-flight prep, um, rejected takeoffs, um, loss of thrust after takeoff, um, loss of AHARs in flight, if that's a thing, um, loss of speed awareness. They talk a lot about, you know, that kind of thing. Um, if you're not familiar with it, it's not a big yeah. deal. No, that's yeah. I, I'm, I, I have my answer. I mean, that's great. Um, that is kind of how I run my flight reviews. Um, you can go through and do all the slow flight stalls, steep turns that you want, uh, but at the end of the day, is that really is that really moving the needle? Is that making that person a better pilot? I like my VFRs to be a learning event, and they should be. Um, it shouldn't necessarily be a pass fail. Um, so. A lot of what I would do is, is fly up just out to the practice area and then we'll do a steep turn or two. Um, and then I'll have them say, so hopefully at that point they're a little disoriented. And then I say, okay, well, take me to the nearest airport. All right. So then they're, they're kind of, then the, the nearest airport happens to be like eight miles away. So can they, under pressure, can they make quick decisions? Um, can they prioritize their workload? And then I'll give them an engine failure when they're about five miles out within gliding distance to see how they decide what to do with that situation. I'm writing all this down. So if I do my flight review with you, Jeff, <laughs> <That's right. writing. laughs> so, so then they get to kind of learn from that. Um, you know, in a flight review, I'm basically seeing, are they safe to go up? Would I allow them to go up with somebody that I care about? Um, so, how, how would they handle that situation? And if they didn't handle it well, we talk about it. Um, and then also, um, you just mentioned loss of thrust on takeoff. I like to go up and do, all right, let's do the impossible turn. We talk, everybody talks about it. Have you ever done it before? Um, so we'll go do, uh, try to try the impossible turn at a, at a quiet airport where there's not a whole lot going on. 
So a thousand if you need a GL, of course they kind of know it's coming already. You simulate engine failure, so they have to make a turn and see if they can make it back. Then we'll do one at 1500 feet, and then we'll do one at 700 AGL, and just see how it turns out. Um, and then also simulate engine failures in route, kind of like I, I mentioned just now at the beginning, just so you're just not practicing those things on a daily basis and outside of a training environment. So that's what a BFR is, is for, is for you to go back and review the things that you had to perform on in your check ride. And so that's what the BFR should really be about. So I like this AQR idea. I'll have to look it up. AQ, yeah. AQP. Yeah, it's, <laughs> it is interesting. You know, what does it stand for? Um, why do you ask me things that I? Uh, <laughs> it's just like Brian. I watched your face as soon as he said AQP. That's how I went and loaded it real fast. Uh, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to be well, well, why advanced advanced qualification program. Yeah. I'll I'll put a link. I'll put a link in the chat. Um, you know, you know, somebody who really pushed it pretty hard was Josh Flowers, Aviation 101 um, YouTube channel, and he he's actually made a really nice. I'm talking about a 44 page. Um, document um that is pretty pretty detailed and I, I think it's a pretty it's a pretty common sense approach really uh, and i've read it and looked through all this material before um but i'll put a link in the chat for everyone that wants to check it out so um so uh jeff i have a question uh about uh we're kind of just getting back to sort of the the, the flight school part of this but yeah. um you know Frequency change, you know, I, like I said, you know, the, the plane that I was flying and uh, with Adam and some others, you know, we had to serve a small cohort of people that were renting from an owner and you were sort of overseeing that plane for people that were not necessarily training uh, and we could take the plane on trips and do things like that. You, you know, I don't know anybody else that's doing anything like that. Uh, I hope that you find a way to do it again because that's to me a gaping uh, absence in the market, at least in this region where, you know, you're up against a, a two year, three year waiting list to get into a flying club or um, you're flying flight school rentals. And there's not a whole lot of in between for people that are not prepared to go and, and just buy a plane. Um, so uh, do you have, do you have plans to, to build out something like that a little bit more concertedly or, I, or was that maybe something that was a little bit more experimental? And the reason why I mention all this is because ultimately you're an accountant, you're a business owner and you know, the bottom line of those things better than, than I would. For me, I'm the consumer. I'm like, this is awesome. But for you, maybe it wasn't, I don't know. Or maybe that's something that you want to do uh, tweaks to. Yeah, sure. So um, yeah, that program was, um, for all intents and purposes, it was for what you just described. We don't get our licenses so that we can go buzz around the pattern and do slow flight. So uh, we get it to go places. So where can you do that? Anywhere near here? Nowhere. So I did start that program as a way for people to be able to do that without using our flight school airplanes that are using, they're being used for training every day. Obviously, um, we're a business and we have to, we have to, uh, do what we're in business to do. So, um, that was a great option. Um, and, and frankly, it wasn't a whole lot of profit to me, but it was recognition of our flight school. It, it brought recognition to us, even though there were only four people in the club. Um, you know, I was, uh, the plan was to expand that further and, uh, bring in bring on other aircraft there was already a wait list of like eight people who wanted mm. to be in that airplane when when it flipped over um so yeah there are plans to to do it it's just finding i know that there are owners out there who who want to participate uh, i just have to find them and to that point um brian you know you and i know of a local uh charity uh it was yeah. an event that you and i went to recently uh, I'm trying to incorporate that mission into ah. that that program. I really want to. I really want to get involved with that, and I think that that is a super mission, like a great mission for for someone who wants to go out and, and do good with with their flying skills. Um, is to to have access to an airplane for that explicit purpose. Oh, that's so that's great. that's kind of my next. Um, 
<clears throat> so we can just briefly just tell everybody i've a lot of people already know about this and i've brought a lot of people in a lot of people here thank you have you've already donated to freedom aviation network and offered your services as a pilot all over the country we've got people in here that have already raised their hand for them which is great uh but that's what you're what jeff is talking about here and so yeah if you could actually have uh Imagine, yeah, like this sort of dedicated fleet, right? Like, how cool would that be? Yep. And it would just be, you know, the owner, just like the owner that we had in the last case, uh, basically has frequency change, manages the airplane, does all the maintenance, et cetera, et cetera. But you have people leasing the airplane for that purpose. And uh, to my understanding, I actually just spoke with Stephanie today, and she said that they have more pilots and they're getting busier. So the, the missions are there, and it's just how, how do we provide the resources for those missions to be executed? That is, that is really awesome. And then, you know, as far as... Um uh, you know, the school that, that you're running and the way that you're doing things a, a little bit differently. Um, if, if, you know, we've got a lot of people in here that are from this area, but we got a lot of people that are all over the country, but I mean, I can see a lot of reason why people would want to come from a lot of places. I mean, Nashville is a destination, you know, if people want to come here and do a flight review with you, right. Because they've got kind of gotten to know you here or, um, you know, uh, or with one of your instructors, or if somebody wanted to be a part of it, um, and we wanted to sort of raise our hands and say frequency change aviation, I'd love to do something with you guys. Um, either I want to get my license or I want to get another rating. Um, what, what's, what do people do? What's the next step? Just go to the website or, or, uh, just, uh, like look up your address or what, is, what should people do? Um, yeah, the website's probably the best resource. There is a, there are forms there. Uh, online where you could submit the type of training that you're looking for uh, or just like a contact me sort of form where you can put in your, your, your name, number, and email. Um, happy to field uh, or put my email address out there as well if anybody wanted to call or call the office. Um, either of those three methods would be just fine. Cool. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think that it's easy – just being a pilot is really hard <laughs> then to be a pilot. And then also a business owner of any kind is really hard to be a pilot, a business owner that chooses to be a business owner in the field of aviation exponentially hard. Um, and then to do that in a way where you've been able to grow this thing and, and continue to build trust uh, and deliver on the experience for people. Um, you know, I, I think that you're, you're, you're conscientiously building something that I think, uh, and we haven't even touched on, you know, the Cirrus training and, uh, you know, the full scale sort of experience that, uh, transition training, all the other things that, that you, you offer, um, you know, it actually might be a really cool thing at some, we've got some, we've got some Cirrus, uh, folks, uh, you know, it might be cool to have you back at some point to really just dig down into the, the Cirrus world, because I think there's a lot of people that, uh, we just, I'm not in that world, but I know that a lot of people are. And, and, uh, so you have a lot more experience, I guess, to, uh, and, and things to offer to people than, than what is we've talked about here. But, um, but I, I, I do hope that. people reach out and, um, and connect with you and, and you've always been very, very good to me. Um, and I've enjoyed flying with you and, and, um, you know, I, I will say that when you're a, when you're a, a newer pilot, you can really tell what the instructor is thinking, especially if they're an instructor that hasn't flown with you very much by how they have their hand, mm -hmm. you know, sort of, they do the hand sort of at the ready thing, you know, like <laughs> right on, right on the cowling, you know, how you Defense. Do that? it's like, my favorite is the hand just behind the oak, not touching it, but trying to make sure you don't plant the nose wheel in it. Like they're just always ready to like, guard it right? it's, it's only yeah. until you see like the instructor's hand in their lap that you know you've done anything right uh, so um so I, I look forward to you know flying with you again one day and getting your hand off the cowling and in a relaxed position uh, no i feel like uh, when we flew together i think i was probably i don't think i touched the controls <laughs> okay <laughs> so kudos um, to you 
Yeah, right, right. So, um, anyway, so so Chris, I guess you can send us out. Get right knows how to get in touch with uh, with Jeff and Jeff. Thanks. For what what is the website? Can you give us a website real quick? Yes, it's just frequencychangeaviation.com. Perfect. Oh, and by then, the way, that's one more yeah. thing I want to throw at you, uh, Jeff. Is that early on in the chat, uh, somebody was saying that it damn well better be true that when people pass their check ride through frequency change, that they get a frequency change approved T shirt. So if you're not offering those, you should do that. Uh, actually, uh, it's funny you say that. Uh, I'm having my 12 year old daughter. She's actually pretty good at art. I'm having her design a T-shirt uh, that we can use for something like that. But uh, we do get free advertising at John Tune every time you leave the class Delta <laughs> airspace. It's frequency change. <laughs> we have been approved. <laughs> Smart. Oh, that's that's awesome. Smart, Smart move. Yeah. Well, man, we really appreciate. It. I'm glad Brian made the connection. Um, this has been super informative. Uh, we always love having people that are smarter than us on, which is not hard necessarily, but it's uh, always enlightening to get different perspectives from folks who've just done so many things. And you definitely have it going on in Nashville. Uh, so I do hope we get to talk again sometime. Uh, we'll find another topic and just knock it out. Um, but it was great having you. Um, for everybody who's uh, – thanks for joining us in the chat room. We record these podcasts every other Wednesday night at 8 p.m. Eastern uh, on the Midlife Pilot YouTube channel, and it's great to uh, interact with all of our uh, folks in there. And like Brian likes to say, click the things, do the things. Uh, if you haven't subscribed to the audio podcast or your favorite podcast player, please do that, especially on Apple. It helps us tremendously. Um, leave a rating and a review if you don't mind. Um, helps get really what it does. It helps other folks like us who may not know the show exists find it and be part of this awesome community that has kind of built around this idea of aviation isn't just for kids anymore. Uh, and uh, we're, we're proving that every time. Hey, by the way, we've, we've pierced the top 10 of aviation podcasts in the United States. Um, it it kind of fluctuates there. So, you know, it'll go between 10 and 20 and then, you know, all this. So if the more people press buttons and do things and share things, uh, the more we get some vague sense of satisfaction out of being better than uh, other people, which is really what it's all about. I mean... I'm glad how elegant, how elegant and kind-hearted of you to put it. That's very benevolent. I'm like, let's build the community of people like us, and Brian's like, uh, it makes us we're better than we uh, must win. Yes, victory! <laughs> All right, everybody, thanks for joining us in the live stream. Uh, thanks for listening, and we'll see you again in two weeks on the Midlife Pilot Podcast. And Jeff, Take hang care. out. We'll be right back with you. Take okay. care, everybody. See ya.